Last Sunday, I concluded my sermon with a helpful statement that my wife made to me, and I have heard from a number of you how it's kind of stuck with you through the course of the last week. It was helpful to me. I assume it's helpful to you, which was this statement. She said, Mark, God is going to help you. He has to. That statement is a reminder that when you feel vulnerable or frightened or anxious or fearful that God promises he's going to help you. And we find this promise not only in the book of Isaiah, we find it all over the Bible. One example would be in the book of Romans chapter eight where the apostle Paul says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what Paul does in that text is he anchors this promise that God is going to help you in the very bedrock of the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you're here today or if you're listening to this sermon and you're not yet a Christian, you need to know that to be a Christian means that all the promises of God flow from the greatest moment in human history, which was when Jesus died on the cross as a payment for our sins. The argument in Romans 8 is that if God used the death of his son for good purposes, then don't you think he can use anything? If he used that, then certainly he can take care of you when you've found out that you've got cancer. If he used the cross, he can use the uncertainties and the challenges that you're facing at work. If he used the cross, he can use the brokenness that's in your life or in your family. If he used the cross, it's a reminder that the devil doesn't win. What's more, God and his promises are directly connected to who he is. That God swears he's gonna be faithful and he swears by himself. He has to help us because he's sworn to, and he swears to on his own character. Hebrews chapter six puts it this way. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which is it impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The point of this text is that God is going to help you. He has to, he's promised to, and It is the finished work of Christ that becomes the ultimate guarantee that he's going to be faithful to that very promise. So he's going to help you, he has to, but there's another question. The question is, why does he have to? Imagine someone hearing the statement, God is going to help you, and they they painfully ask you the question, well, why does he help me? Why does he even want to help me? And your answer to this why question gets to the heart of the gospel and it's what makes grace so amazing. 
And here's the truth that's underneath the truth from last week, and it's this, that God rescues the unworthy in order to show his worthiness. Again, God rescues the unworthy in order to show his worthiness. As Isaiah considers what God will teach the people of Israel through their future coming captivity, he highlights both the worthiness of God and the unworthiness of people. It's like what John Newton said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved uh, an amazing person like me. (laughs) Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a perfect person like me. No, what does he say? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And in Isaiah 48, we find another chapter designed to encourage God's people. And the encouragement comes from two foundational truths, two truths about God that should be believed. And these are very familiar words if you're a part of a church, if you're a member, if you come to church on a regular basis, and even if you're not a Christian, you probably are familiar at some level with these words. I hope to help you understand them more fully. Those two words are the grace of God and the glory of God. So these two foundational truths about God that have to be believed and need to be declared are the grace of God and the glory of God. And if you're a Christian here, you need to know that those words, grace and glory, it's like the one two-step of the Christian life. Left foot, right foot, one foot in front of another. Grace, glory, grace, glory, grace, glory. When I was in high school, I played the trombone and I was in the marching band and uh, I was the first chair trombonist. Don't be impressed, it was a small high school. Um, And our, our marching band, when we would go out, the trombones were all in the front row. It's pretty impressive. You And when you're the first trombone, you're also right next to the band conductor and you have to keep pace with him while moving your slide back and forth. And it's left foot, right foot, because his pace and your pace determines the pace of the rest of the marching band. So left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Now, if that illustration doesn't work for you, I'm gonna burn something in your memory with this next one, which is this. Imagine it's the Cupid shuffle, all right? Yes, I know what the Cupid Shuffle is. You know, to the right, to the right, to the right, to the right, to the left, to the left, to the left. Dutch guy can't dance, but you know what I'm saying? Left, right, right, right. So it's this, grace, 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 glory, glory, glory. (laughs) Now that I've sufficiently, okay, well, thank you very much. One of my friends tells me, bro, stay in your lane, stay in your lane, I'm trying. But I've burned this in your memory. It's a bit of pastoral and sermon trauma, but it will stick with you all week, you know? Cupid, shuffle, grace, grace, glory, glory. No memes of that, please. We're gonna look at these. Grace and glory, grace and glory. Here we go. The grace of God. The first eight verses help us to see that God loves his people and he rescues them. But here's the deal. Listen to this. He rescues us in spite of us. The text is gonna highlight five characteristics, tragic characteristics of God's people, and those characteristics make God's love all the more amazing. In other words, what I'm gonna show you is that God doesn't love his people because of what they do. God loves his people despite what they do. So understand, you're listening to the sermon God sets his love on you not because of what you do. God sets his love on you despite what you do. 
Now, before I get into this passage, some of you are already feeling defensive. Great, another message where I learn and am reminded about what a loser I am. Some of you have come to church, you already feel like a failure. You already know you're a mess. You don't need somebody, let alone a pastor, getting in your grill telling you that you're a failure. You know it's true. But what I want you to know is that the reason that this is in the Bible is not to wound you, it's to welcome you. It's not to shame you, it's to save you. It's not to hurt you, it's to heal you. The Bible tells us what we are like so that we can know that the offer of redemption is for us. It's like the Bible says, Anyone broken? Come to Jesus. And a host of people go, broken. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Ray Ortland puts it like this. If you are in Christ, whatever God is doing in your life right now is not an experiment that he might abandon if he gets fed up with you. You need to know that God would have to stop being God before he quit on you. And why is God devoted to you? It's not because you risk looking like a failure. (laughs) You already do. So do I. It's because God will never let his purpose fail. The defeat of grace to sinners would be the defeat of God. So this text highlights the unworthiness of people not to make us feel terrible, but rather to amaze us with the grace and mercy of God. So let's see what we learn about God's grace here through the lens of how Israel, and for that matter, all of us, are described. There's five descriptors here, all of which God applies grace to. So think of it this way. God is gracious to the, we're gonna fill that blank in with five different words. So first, God is gracious to the inconsistent. In verses one and two, we see some amazing descriptions of the identity of Israel. They've been given so much. They're called by name. He says, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah. It's their identity. It's who they are, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. But here's the problem, but not in truth or right. You see, they have the trappings of spirituality. They have the image of religious fervor, but there's a problem. It's not in truth or right. They are spiritually inconsistent. They are guilty of being hypocritical. Things look good from the outside, but behind the scenes, they're filled with blatant inconsistency. I trust you know that the one day of the week when this is most likely to happen for those of us who are Christians, is today. We talk a good game, sing the songs, nod the head with a truth from the sermon, but the fact of the matter is we all know that we're not living 100. Jesus welcomes those who are exhausted trying to keep up those appearances. 
Listen to me, he doesn't love you because of your curated online persona. And newsflash, we all know your life isn't that amazing. We just know you're showing us the pictures of the amazing things that are happening. Hey, no one posting the first look that they had in the mirror this morning. No one's doing that. He's not loving you because of your over-spiritualized answers. Your church speak that you use on Sundays. He's not setting his affection on you because of how busy you are and doing things for other people. He doesn't love us because we keep it real, because we know we really don't keep it real. Listen to me, God is gracious to us despite our inconsistency. He set his affection on you even though he knows you're not perfect. God's grace applies to the inconsistent. Next, God's grace applies to the stubborn. Listen carefully, you're gonna need these notes for a friend. <laughs> Verse three, the former things I declared of old, they went out of or out from my mouth and I announced them, then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. God's like, I did all these things. But what does he say? Because you are, because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. <laughs> I love the Bible. It's like so like in your grill, you're a blockhead. Your forehead's like brass. Your neck is so stiff. God's writing here to people whose stubbornness is just part of their characteristic. Pattern. The, the Hebrew word here means a person who is rough with others, like 1 Samuel 20 and verse 10, or somebody who's harsh, 1 Samuel 25, 3. It's the kind of person who just makes everyone's life difficult, and it's their characteristic pattern. Their neck is an iron sinew, their forehead is a forehead of brass. It's, if you're a teacher, it's, it's that one student that when they're sick, the whole classroom is so much better that day. You don't want to tell anybody, but... You're kind of glad they're not in class. It's that person in their small group that when they go on vacation, the discussion is amazing because it's so much easier. You just can't tell them, welcome back. It's that person on your team that when they're not there, everything is just, it's just so much easier. So God is gracious to these kinds of people. He's gracious to the self-confident. He's gracious to people who have authority issues. He's gracious to the opinionated. He's gracious to those who think that they are always right. God extends grace to the obstinate and the stubborn, and aren't you glad that he does? So to the inconsistent, to the stubborn, third, to the selfish. In verse five, God explains that he announces things in advance because he knows the pattern of his people. He says, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. God knows his people. And by the way, notice all the use of the word my in verse five, the second half. My idol did them, my carved image, my metal image commanded them. God knows the characteristic pattern of human beings is for God to do something and then for people to not only take credit but to assign it to an idol that they actually made. That's amazing. That's right, my idol did that. 
but I created my own idol. I paid a goldsmith to make it and I bow down to something that I've created myself and I think that that thing then did this thing. God says, yeah, that's the way we are. God extends grace to people who think they're in control of their lives and brag about it. Fourth, God extends grace to the arrogant. Look at verse six, you have heard. Now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. God says, I'm doing a new thing, and you don't know, and don't you dare tell me that you knew it, because our characteristic pattern is to have hearts that are so inclined to be full of ourselves that we think we know about it before it actually happens, when in fact we don't. And then finally, here's the summary. God is gracious to the rebellious, verse eight. You have never heard, you have never known, from of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth, here it is, you were called a rebel. So here this section reaches a crescendo and verse eight is a stunning rebuke. God says, you have never heard, you have never known, your ear has never been opened. God has a long history with people and he knows what we know, which is we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. I was talking with two women about this on Tuesday as I was walking through the atrium. They were coming out of a women's Bible study on the book of Judges, and they were commenting how remarkable it is that the book of Judges reminds them of our own present culture and society, that we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over and over. Now what you need to know is that these descriptions of the people of God are not here for some nasty, judgmental critique. But rather, what God is doing is helping us to see the kind of people to whom he applies mercy. God's conclusion about them isn't designed to be something that puts them into despair but rather it's designed to be something that opens the door for grace. So how do we think about this list? As I'm going over these characteristic patterns of human beings, how does it land on you? When I talk about the inconsistent, the stubborn, the selfish, the arrogant, and the rebellious, what do you do with that? Or Maybe put those words aside for a moment and pick your own words to describe what you are like at your worst. Angry, conceited, vengeful, dishonest, insecure, covetous, lustful, vain, doubting, unbelieving, guilty, or anxious. My guess is those words, they, they feel heavy, maybe even discouraging. Some of you came to church today, you're looking for some kind of hope, and you might even be tempted to think, I don't need to be reminded how messed up I am. That may be true. But I wanna issue a caution here. Imagine how you would feel if that list wasn't about who you really are, but imagine if God conditions the application of his grace to what you need to be. Here's what I mean. Imagine if the list, rather than sounding like God is merciful to the 
inconsistent. He's merciful to the selfish. He's merciful to the arrogant. Imagine if instead it sounded like God is merciful to those who are perfect. God is kind to those who are worthy. God is compassionate to those who are consistent, to those who are busy, to those who are calm, to those who are generous. What would it be like if your entire hope for mercy was entirely dependent on your perfection? Some of you know what that's like. You're like, I I was raised in a home like that. My mom and my dad were like that. Like, I had to be perfect. Had to say the right thing, do the right thing. You, you, you may have grown up in a church like that. Played for a coach like that. Had a friend like that. Kind of friend who's like, man, if I don't say thank you or if I forget their birthday or I'm not like a golden retriever every time I see them, I'm like, ah, good morning, good to see you. You're so awesome. And, and this person is like, I don't want to be your friend anymore because you're not, you're not nice to me. And as a result, it crushes relationships. And here's the good news. God isn't like that. He sets his affection on broken people. He pours out his mercy on people who are undeserving. He welcomes rebels into his family. And as a result, people who name the name of Christ ought not to be surprised when we don't do exactly what we ought to do. We ought not be surprised when other people disappoint us. We ought not be surprised when our disobedience surfaces. That is who we are. Our hope is not perfection. Our hope is resting in the promise of God's grace for imperfect people. And for some of you, that is life-giving news. So this is what makes grace so amazing. But then the question is, why does he do this? And that leads us to our second point, grace, glory. Why does God do this? Why does God love his people? Why does he treat us with such kindness? Well, it's not because we're so amazing. It's not because God gets a good deal with us. Why does he put up with us? Well, he tells us, look at verse nine. For my sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, verse 10, I have refined you not as silver, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. The reason that God sets his love on human beings is not because of the worthiness of human beings, but rather because of the worth of his name. The reason that God redeems lost and broken and hurting people is not because his people, once they are redeemed, are then going to make everything right and make every great decision and do everything that they're supposed to do. That is not why God redeems people. He doesn't redeem perfect people and he doesn't cause them to be perfect as they grow in sanctification. Rather, there's an incremental process along the way. God redeems people in order to manifest his own glory. 
I'll help you understand why that's so important. God treats us with kindness because he aims for the world to see what a marvelous God he is. Some of you may be a bit uncomfortable with that because it almost makes God sound like he's narcissistic or maybe a megalomaniac. But in the same way that God swearing by himself is the greatest assurance that he'll make good on his promise, so too God glorifying himself makes sense when you know that the glory of God is the ultimate good in the entire universe. If the glory of God is the thing that everything else is pointing towards, and if the glory of God is the thing from which all life flows, and if the glory of God is the ultimate good in the universe, then God pointing to his own glory is not narcissistic, it's actually the most beautiful thing he could do by telling us this is what is amazing, and I will give my glory to none other because I am God, there is no other one. It's the same argument that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter four, or chapter two rather, in verse four through nine. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice that. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. The grace of God eliminates the boasting of what you do that's amazing, and the grace of God eliminates the commiserating and the shame when you fail miserably. Your life Christian isn't dependent on your performance or your lack thereof. Your entire life is based upon God's mercy to undeserving people. So the point is, welcome to the family. We're all rebels who found redemption in the person and work of Christ. And why does God do that? He does that because he's God. We see this in a number of other places in this chapter, look at verse 12. God's glory is connected to who he is. He says, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Verse 13 tells us he's the creator and his glory is displayed in the entire created order. Verse 14, he controls the rise and the fall of nations. He empowers leaders in verses 15 and 16 that conquer like Cyrus that we talked about last week. And in verse 17, he's the one who goes before everyone and creates blessing. Look at verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. God's ready to pour out blessing and grace such that following him becomes the very best kind of life that you could have. Verse 18, oh, that you would have paid attention to my commandments and your peace, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their names would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. The idea is that God's glory is not just the effect of what he does. God's glory as creator, as king, as God is the 
core motivation for everything that he does. God's glory is the why behind the what of redemption. In other words, God loves you not because you're amazing. He loves you not because you're perfect. He loves you not because once you become redeemed, you're gonna be like the best Christian ever. God loves you because he wants to glorify his name in all of the earth, and that provides freedom. Verse 20, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout, proclaim it, and send it out to the end of the earth. Here's the statement. This is the crescendo of the passage. The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. That's, that's what's meant to be pronounced, like declared to the world that God aims to redeem a people so that the entire created world will know God redeems and rescues and saves sinners. This bold declaration of praise and adoration is designed to fully display the glory of God. Understand, if you're a Christian, your ability to glorify God is directly linked to your understanding of your imperfection and God's grace despite your imperfection. It means that your story is I am the biggest sinner I know, and God rescued me. Your story is not, I had a few things going wrong with my life. That's a lot better than most people, and saw this thing about not going to hell when I die, so I thought, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Why not ask Jesus in my heart? Because I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven, so I traded up. That is not the gospel. That's an abominable view of what it is that God did for you in Christ. What he did for you in Christ, he rescued you from you. He rescued you from all of the brokenness and he did so not to make much of you but rather in order to magnify and glorify his name. So your entire reason why you exist on planet earth is to celebrate his grace and give him glory. Grace, glory, grace, glory, grace, glory. And the anti-gospel or the way that we un unravel this is we think I can do it without him and I'm really awesome. And what God aims to show here is his unbelievable worthiness. Verse 21, they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. In other words, God takes care of those who he redeems. And then we come to verse 22, where he says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. It's as though God reminds us at the end, there's Two paths. Not everybody who reads Isaiah 48 is on the same path. So one path is a path that means I know that I'm a sinner. Jesus died for my sins. I know that without his mercy, I have no hope of any standing before him. I'm not righteous at my core. Everything I do is bad at some level, and I need Jesus to rescue me from me. And I receive Christ as my savior, so my whole life is now on a trajectory of receiving grace and walking for the glory of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. To not be a Christian means that you think you gotta try and figure out how to make it on your own. You gotta balance the scales of divine justice. You gotta give more money than other people or at least do less bad things than everybody else and compare yourself to other people. And on this path, you're constantly 
evaluating where you fall in the pecking order of righteousness. Am I better than them? Am I not better than them? Like, how do I stand and where am I at? And so you're so busy doing, 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 or you may have given up on doing, so instead you just do that in your mind where you judge other people, like I'm better than them and who cares about Christians, they're all hypocrites anyways, and you do all of that to try and make your path seem straight, and it's exhausting. And some of you are here today, you're not yet a Christian, and the reason you're in this room, the reason you're hearing this message is because God wants you to come from that path to this path because you're tired and weary, and Jesus wants to welcome another rebel into the family. So come. Come to, come to Jesus, come to faith. Put your trust in Jesus today and become a person who makes this the very day when Jesus is your Lord and Savior. A few applications. Two to Christians, one to non-Christians. First, to those of you who are Christians, can I ask you first, is grace your identity? Is grace your identity? By that I mean this. The people of Israel were marked by the singular idea that they were a people who were redeemed. And to be a Christian means that grace defines your life such that you are secure in your identity in Jesus. What that means, listen carefully, it means you don't have to be perfect. What's crazy is some of you are living your life like that's an expectation. If you're married, your spouse knows you're not perfect. They married you anyways. Your kids, like, they seriously know you're not perfect. Your friends, they know you're not perfect. So why in the world are you so busy trying to present perfection? Everybody knows you're not. Christians don't have to be perfect because perfection isn't our identity. Grace is. What's more, it means that Christians then live in gratitude because you know you have so much to be thankful for. It's like the Apostle Paul when he said, what do you have that you didn't receive? Answer, nothing. Everything I have, I didn't deserve. That also then changes how you view endurance. You know that God is going to help you. He has to because you can't make it without him. So your prayer of desperation, God, you have to help me, isn't based just on the promise of God. It's based upon your desperation that you know if God doesn't help me, it's over because it's always been over if God didn't help you. That's not a new thought. You just lost it for a minute. Wait a minute. I needed God's help from day one. And this reminder is just a reinforcement of the truth that I've staked my entire eternity on. I can't make it without God's help. So first, is grace your identity? Secondly, is grace your posture towards others? Is grace your posture toward others? You see, when Christians see themselves this way, when we believe in God's grace, we should have a different orientation toward other people. We understand the collective unworthiness of humanity, and as a result, we ought to be the least surprised people when people act in a way that fits with their broken humanity. In fact, the reverse should be true. You should be shocked when people get along. I mean, parents know this, right? You go out to a fancy restaurant, you're gonna bring your kids, you're like, oh man, how many iPads do we have, right? So what are we gonna do? And you leave that dinner and everybody was obedient, they didn't complain, and you're like, well, that went well, right? <laughs> Why are you surprised? Because you're parents, you know kids. You go to a family reunion and you're like, oh man, watch out. And you leave and you're like, man, that's what's surprising. Like, people, I really enjoyed that. It's good times. We, that should be not a depressed 
orientation to see humanity, but for us to realize that's how broken we are. We have to be surprised when everything goes smoothly. We ought not be shocked when people are mean or harsh or rude. Someone's mean to you this week, can I remind you? Friend, Christian, you're mean too. Welcome to the meanie club, it's called humanity. And the difference is Christians know what to do with their latent mean streak. Finally, to those of you that are not Christians, oh friend, why not receive Jesus today? The invitation is to come off the path that is absolutely exhausting. You came to church today, my guess is you're searching for something, something's not right, Awesome, way to start thinking about that. And here's the answer. The answer is that everything that you're looking is not outside of you in terms of things that are gonna fulfill you. Everything you're looking for is not inside of you. Everything that you're looking for is in the person of Jesus. And what if today was the day when you came to him? You might say, you don't know what I've done. You know what? I don't know, but God does and he still loves you. You don't know what a mess I've been. Welcome to the church of messed up people. There's no island of misfit toys in our kingdom. The whole kingdom is misfit toys. We're all broken people. God delights to show his, un, to show his worthiness to those who are unworthy. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Or in a modern day song, that we're gonna sing in a moment, what patience would wait as we constantly roam, what father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. My sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Lord Jesus, press, we pray, this helpful truth of grace and glory into our lives this week. Fill us up with your, Lord, with a full understanding of your mercy and kindness so that we can understand who we are, understand who other people are, and follow you faithfully one more week. Lord, for weary and discouraged people today, God, give them special help. Remind them that you were the one that said, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Oh Lord, draw people to faith in Christ. Encourage those who already know you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.